Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is actually Friday on the Three Martini Lunch. We finally made it here. It's been a long week anyway, but it uh, probably felt extra long since it's been our first full week in a little while here. But, uh, Jim, we made it. The weekend is almost here. How are you? I'm doing okay. The joke is, what day is it? Between the mini week we had after New Year's, you know, January 2nd and 3rd, and then this week and the snow day in the middle of it, (laughs) 2020 is off to a rough start for knowing what day it is. It is true, but we're already 10 days in. That's amazing. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis uh, for you today. So glad you're here. Uh, Let's start with the good. Jim, the Dow crossed 29,000 points on Friday, uh, obviously closing in on 30,000. CNBC reports it like this. Stocks rose to record highs on Friday despite weaker-than-expected jobs data as Wall Street concluded a volatile week chock full of geopolitical concerns. The Dow Jones Industrial Average traded 48 points higher to break above 29,000 for the first time ever. Uh, The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq also up. Uh, Investors like the fact that uh, things seem to be de-escalating with the Iranians, although we'll be talking about that a little bit later in the podcast. The jobs data that they referred to, 145,000 new jobs uh, created net in December, which is below expectations. Unemployment remains steady at 3.5%, which is a 50-year low. So, Jim, when Trump came in, he was uh, at 19,804. I looked that up this morning. Uh, So a very healthy gain in almost exactly three years. And from the bottoming out uh, of the financial crisis, which was 64-something, we've uh, jumped about 450% since then. So the economy seems to be quite strong. Yeah. And let's, you know, point out regarding that jobs report. Today's jobs report is it's okay. It's pretty good. It's always nice. You're you're above the replacement level for the number of people entering the workforce. Um, it's it's you know it's not. We've had a really good run lately, and this is not nearly as good as those. But it's it's fine. It, it's a perfectly fine jobs report. Um, whenever the stock market hits a new record, you end up with this kind of dumb argument between the president and his critics. Uh, the president will say the stock market hit a new record. You know, aren't I terrific? And people will say it's not because of you. Um, and they'll also say things like, you know, he'll say, we've had more record highs under my presidency than ever before. And people point out that each time you're setting the record, if it goes up at all, if it goes up 1%, if it goes up one point, you've you've created a new record. <laughs> you know, once you're at the record, it's fairly easy to hit new records. Any good day is going to put you up a little bit higher. That having been said, and the critics say, that's such a silly measurement, you know. Uh, of course, you weren't going to have as many record highs under Obama because, you know, we was trying to, you know, the recession was. But in the end, the argument of Trump saying we've hit more records than ever than any other presidency before, it's because we've had a really good run under the three years of his presidency so far. And you can hear me knocking on wood as that happens. But maybe even this probably more politically significant aspect of this is, Greg, in the last, I'm going to say, week or so, maybe I guess the, the statements of your your investments and your. Uh, and not just, you know, your, your rich people investments, like, you know, parents who have 529 accounts, at least they have them here in Virginia, where you're uh, saving up money for your ch- children's college education. They all had a really good year last year. Like, you know, so by some people are saying, you know, up, you know 20%, 25%, 30%. Uh, people get looking at their IRAs. They're looking at this and saying, wow, that was a good year, right? This sort of thing is getting a lot of people to, you know, whatever, they're, they're, 
inclined to say, hey, you know what? Whatever we're doing in government, don't change it. Don't mess it up. We are really enjoying this roaring economy and this roaring stock market. And I know that people say, oh, you know, the, stock, the economy is more than just a stock market. And yes, there's no doubt about that. But, uh, you know, and then the idea of, oh, you know, mostly it's rich people who invest in the stock market. Yeah, but, you know, there are a whole bunch of people who are middle class or who are invested. And also you look at groups like CalPERS and, and all kinds of pension funds are invested in these companies. So a good year on Wall Street helps these people too. Uh, all in all, this is a, a pretty darn good economy right now. And my feeling is that, again, these end-of-the-year statements, people are starting to get it. They're starting to feel a little more comfortable at retirement, starting to feel a little more comfortable paying for their children's education. Uh, good news in America. That's always a good martini for us. It is a good martini for us. I'm sure that uh, somewhere Bernie Sanders is saying, whoa, you're congratulating the billionaires for getting richer. Good job, guys. That was a pretty good Bernie Sanders there, Greg. <laughs> I know I'm usually Mr. Impressions around here. I, I tip my hat to that. You guys remember, it used to be millionaires and the billionaires and the big banks. And now lately, it's just billionaires and the big banks. Millionaires are okay now. Just happened to coincide with, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders becoming a millionaire. So this will be spun like everything else. But uh, the president always gets probably more credit than he deserves when things are good. More blame uh, when they're bad. But uh, when you're running for re-election, uh, a good economy is definitely something you want on your side. Jim, let's turn to our bad martini now. And as we discussed yesterday, it appears that the Iranians shot down the Ukrainian airliner. What we don't know at this point is if it was deliberate or accidental. Uh, Justin Trudeau uh, talking about the dozens of Canadians who were killed, uh, says it could very well have been unintentional. Boris Johnson, uh, the UK, there were four Brits on the plane. He says it could be uh, unintentional. The Iranians, meanwhile, are claiming that they didn't shoot it down at all. Uh, and uh, so, so we'll see uh, how cooperative they're actually willing to be on this to, to get to the bottom of it. But uh, the fact that this happened uh, has now entered into the political realm on another level. Pete Buttigieg, now the former mayor of South Bend, by the way, that changed at the beginning of the year. Uh, he tweeted out in a tweet that is running neck and neck between likes and replies, which means he's on the verge of being ratioed here. He says innocent civilians are now dead because they were caught in the middle of an unnecessary and unwanted military tit for tat. My thoughts are with the families and loved ones of all 176 souls lost aboard this flight. And so, Jim, the reason he's on the verge of being ratioed for this, and he should be heavily ratioed for this, is suggesting that uh, there's a, a moral equivalence here uh, because the U.S. killed Soleimani and Iran struck back and this plane happened to be in the airspace the night that Iran uh, lobbed their missiles towards our air bases, uh, that therefore there's blame to go around here. Uh, and he's not the only one saying that. Tulsi Gabbard on uh, Fox News with Bill Hemmer asked to respond to the Buttigieg tweet, and here's their exchange. This is one of these consequences of this escalation and this state of war that we are in. Uh, having a foresight and being able to look at what the consequences are of going to war with Iran, I think, is a serious thing and a responsibility of the present commander-in-chief that I think you, he and his administration do, do, do have I not read looked that, at. Are you agreeing with Buttigieg on the comment based on that answer there? Uh, my point is that this is a very unfortunate consequence of this escalation of war. But it was Iran who owned the anti-aircraft missiles. It was their system. That went uh, off when this airline. To, are, are, are you implying that they did this intentionally? No, I, I did not say that at all. The, the, yeah. the, 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 the inference here is that Iran is responsible for this. 
and not this, the tit for tat. This, this, no, no. This, this is this is the consequence of this escalation of war. So, Jim, we kill Soleimani. Iran uh, lobs a few missiles back towards Iraq, and in the process, appears to have shot down a passenger airliner. And somehow, we share the blame. You know. This didn't come up in those particular two examples, but you know, all over social media yesterday, the, ter- the word of the day, today's secret word, as they used to say on Pee Wee's Playhouse, is crossfire. And everyone kept saying, isn't it terrible that this plane went down in the crossfire between Iran and America, the United States? Except here's the thing. There wasn't any crossfire. No fire was crossing back and forth between two sides. Fire was only going in one direction from Iran towards targets of the U.S. in Iraq. And it's kind of, it's more than a little bit infuriating to see this this implication. I don't know whether people are saying this because they're ignorant. I don't know whether people are saying this because they want to create this impression. Um, the other thing, you know, the, the phrase you kept seeing in, the, in this was, you know, this idea, they, Tulsi Gabbard kept going back to escalation of war. I mean, did we escalate by killing Soleimani or did he escalate by firing the mortars at the U.S. bases and killing the contractor? Are we escalating by what we did, or are they escalating by arming their Iranian militias and using them to attack Americans? Did, did they escalate when they started supplying all the insurgents in Iraq with IEDs? Right? We can play this game all night long about who escalated by doing this. All the United States did was take a guy who was commanding the guys who were trying to kill Americans when he was outside of his country on Iraqi soil in a country where the United States has an agreement authorizing them to use military force to defend themselves, and we took them out of the game using a drone. We didn't, we didn't fire any missiles at Iran. We didn't do any. We didn't have them flown into Iranian territory. We ter- the territorial integrity of Iran is intact. Only one side was firing that night. Now, if you want to blame somebody besides the Iranian military today, and I, I talk about this in the morning jolt, you can right. You have, yes, it was the Iranian military that fired the missiles that's, uh, of that evening. Uh, it was Iranian aviation authorities that didn't you know, shut down civilian aviation in the country during that evening. And, of course, it was the Iranian military that fired whatever missile took it down. But if you want to really go at it, you can probably say, OK, um, dear airlines, why were you flying that night? Even if you know, the Federal Aviation Administration had put out an order to U.S. airlines saying, don't fly in this area. There's military action going on. Yeah, but this is exactly the sort of thing where you can end up getting either caught in the crossfire or misidentified as a military jet. Don't fly. And very often, foreign airlines do decide to listen to FAA recommendations. Didn't happen in this case. And not just the uh, Ukrainian airlines, also Lufthansa, some of you know, Turkish, some of the airlines you may have heard of did not do that. And people who, who follow aviation are saying, you know, this is really strange. This is really, this was very preventable. And not just if, oh, if America hadn't killed Soleimani. There was no reason for this airliner to come down if, A, the Iranian groups had been better trained, B, maybe the equipment they're using doesn't do a great job of differentiating between civilian airliners and military jets. Uh, but most importantly, they shouldn't have been flying. They should have been taken out, uh, taken off at that hour. Uh, there's just too much risk of, of you know, everybody being on a, on a hair trigger and firing. So, Deeply frustrating, but I, I really, you know, this whole thing comes down to that Gene Kirkpatrick mentality. They always blame America first. That somehow, some way, if you trace the route back enough, kind of like Billy in those old family circle uh, cartoons, he left a little dotted line everywhere. If you follow that dotted line long enough, eventually blame comes back to the United States of America. Everything ultimately turns into our fault. Yeah, exactly right. And we talked about this earlier in the week, but the the idea that the history of the uh, animosity between the two countries began with whatever just happened 
is absolutely maddening. It obviously goes back 40 years for sure. It goes back even decades before that, if you really want to be honest about it. But the idea that, uh, oh, this guy was uh, second in command. Uh, this guy was revered by his people. No, this guy's in charge of the deaths of hundreds of American servicemen, all the way back to Beirut in 1983, not to mention what happened in Iraq in the, this century. So uh, the, the, the revisionist history here, or the erasing of history, is absolutely maddening. Earlier this week, I wrote this piece about, you know, looking at the Iranian regime since 1979. And there were a couple of people who said, you know, so a lot of people liked it, but some people did. And some people said, well, wait a second. You got to go back to the Iranian coup of 1953 to really understand Iran. OK, all right, fine. I, I support studying history. And no doubt there were a lot of Iranians both then and you know leading up to the 1979 revolution who saw the Shah as an American puppet. And that's what fueled a portion of the anti-Americanism that drove the Iranian revolution. I don't know when we're trying to decide what should we deal with Iran now? Well, we shouldn't have done that back in 1953. Sorry, pal. It's just not that helpful. Uh, that, you know, don't, don't tell me what we should have done differently at, you know, at a, at a, at a uh, historical event that's old enough to collect social security. Now tell me what we should do now. And it's always the same of make more concessions and then they'll be nice to us. Yeah. 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 Not this regime, pal. Sorry. Well, for being honest, we really have to go back to the Battle of Salamis, uh, B.C., when uh, the, per- the Persians were a huge favorite and the Greeks uh, scored a massive upset. It was a home game for the Greeks, so that helped. But uh, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been tense ever since. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, uh, if you enjoyed our podcast and you like a little humor like that and maybe some other things that we say along the way... Um, Check out a new uh, podcast from Radio America. It's called the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. Uh, Two ladies, Mock and Daisy. They're also known as Chicks on the Right. They talk about the issues that matter to you. They talk about things like parenting, uh, the dangers of social media. Political correctness is a big one for them. As well as uh, everyday things like the importance of marriage, men, and family values. So they're smart. They're funny. They're conservative. Uh, it's probably less politics than we have, but uh, everything they talk about and go off on tangents on usually has a, a basis in politics. Uh, they want to make America great again, starting in their own homes. To find out more, go to chicksontheright.com or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. The Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. All right, Jim, common sense might be ebbing away from Democratic voters in the state of South Carolina. There's a new poll out from Fox News. And the real headline here is that Joe Biden is easily in first place and has a 21-point lead over his nearest rival. The second headline, which is getting even more attention than the fact that Biden still has a huge lead there, is who his nearest rival is. Let's build up to that. you got Buttigieg back there at 4%. You've got Warren at 10 You've got Sanders at 14, but in second place at 15%, an 11-point bump since October, Tom Steyer. So, Jim, you and I were dismissing his stiff-as-a-board, only tie he owns somehow as a billionaire performances at these debates, which seem to have no effect whatsoever. But, uh, hey, apparently they're making big ripples in South Carolina because somehow Tom Steyer's in second place there. What do you make of it? First of all, judging by his ties, I believe the proper name is Angus McSteyer, uh, judging by the tartan of red that he's wearing. You know, so for a while, I could explain this, Greg. And, and what it was was that, you know, Tom Steyer was running a whole – he's a billionaire. He's running a whole bunch of TV ads. 
was running a whole bunch of TV ads in South Carolina and Nevada, as well as the other early primary states. And, you know, the candidates are spending a lot of time in Iowa, a lot of time in New Hampshire. But really, these these second two of the big four hadn't gotten quite as much attention. There certainly hasn't been much polling in those states compared to the, the first two. And, you know, if you're, you know, you get called, obviously not a lot of folks answer phone, answer the phone, a landline to begin with. They don't necessarily answer the phone when they don't recognize the number. Hi, we're with so-and-so polling company. We're conducting a poll. Would you like, hello, hello? You know, people hang up on pollsters all the time. So you're talking about people who decide to answer the phone, who feel like answering you know, the questions. And maybe they just saw a Tom Steyer ad on, the, on TV and the, they're asked to who are you supporting? And the first name that comes to mind is Tom Steyer. Or maybe they like the ads. Maybe I'm sure the ads are trying to make him look like he's the good principled guy and uh, I have a hard time believing it's based on his debate performances in which, you know, one, a bit like Andrew Yang, he's not getting very much attention. Um, he, you know, doesn't get a lot of chances to speak. And, and generally when he does, you can tell he's, his you know, knowledge of the issues is a uh, mile wide and an inch deep. Um, but uh, you know, 15 to 12 percent. Now we're now we're getting into territory that's very strange. Um, now we're getting into something and you could kind of see this like quiver of panic reverberate through democratic social media last night as they could the, the, the first insistence of this has got to be some weird outlier it's a weird sample uh this can't really be true to the second possibility of what if tom steyer really does get delegates out of this and what does it say about the party that this guy who just showed up and started spending first of all if he can do it imagine what mike bloomberg's going to do and then the next thing is what does it say that Harris is out and Castro is out and Cory Booker looks like he's on his last legs and no people can't remember Michael Bennett is running like all of these serious Democratic lawmakers have gotten almost no attention or minimal attention in this process. But a billionaire shows up, starts running ads and all of a sudden, poof, they're an instant, you know, serious contender and could be second in South Carolina in a circumstance like this. Democrats like to believe that their voters are the smart ones. This shakes them like that. And I'll be honest, Greg, I'm, I'm, this still could be an outlier, but, and I'm kind of hoping it is because otherwise, you know, we may be in worse shape than we thought, even if it's, you know, not the party we necessarily identify with. You know, we're talking earlier about how Bernie doesn't like the billionaires. I think this one's at the top of his list now because he's, uh, <laughs> he's ahead of him in South Carolina. Bloomberg is making some inroads. I heard in one national poll, he's caught up with when Elizabeth he says Warren. the billionaires are trying to steal this nomination he means two of them Steyer and Bloomberg so there's a lot of talk about broker conventions because uh in response to uh how the game was rigged against uh Bernie four years ago uh not as much uh, influence with the superdelegates and winner-take-all contests and so forth so basically you're looking at uh, a couple different scenarios here there's the Obama versus Hillary slugfest back and forth all the way to the finish only this time would be with multiple candidates which could prevent someone from getting a majority of the pledge delegates. Or it could be something like 2004, where you got a lot of candidates. Nobody's really sure what's going to happen when the votes start. But then John Kerry beats Howard Dean uh, in Iowa, wins New Hampshire. And at that point, the rest of the party's like, OK, John Kerry's the nominee. And he pretty much romps the rest of the way. So which way are you thinking it's headed? Yeah, that second one is very much what Joe Biden is looking for. Joe Biden, right now, I did a whole kind of thing on this in the corner yesterday. Right now, in both Iowa and New Hampshire, you've got Biden, Sanders, Buttigieg, Buttigieg. I keep being told that my boot edge is too uh, is too sharp for the ears of certain <laughs> listeners like Michael Graham. Um, that, yes, you have those all in their 20s. They're all between like 20 and 25%. And then you've got... Elizabeth Warren right at that 15, 16%. So it's really not out of the realm of possibility that she could win. 
Uh, still got a couple of weeks before the voting starts. And so if that comes to pass, you know, the difference between first place and third place could be just a couple of percentage points. If Joe Biden wins both of these and he still is continue, looks like the big front runner in South Carolina, still looks like the front runner in Nevada, looks like the big front runner nationally, then this thing is over pretty easily. It turns into a, you know, a, a coronation process for Joe Biden. Separately, like if you're Pete Buttigieg, uh, you don't if you're Mayor Pete and you don't finish either first place or close second in New, Iowa or New Hampshire, you're in real trouble. You, you really need to do well in at least one of those two states. Uh, to create the kind of infrastructure that you need to manifest itself in these 15 states voting on, voting on Super Tuesday, uh, or else you're in deep trouble. Uh, right now, you look at this, Elizabeth Warren, if she ends up with two fourth place finishes, this thing's over, or at least she, her, her part of the, the campaign is over. Um, she's got to do pretty well somewhere. Uh, the guy who's, who's well-suited for this and the well-suited to turn this into a two-man race is Bernie Sanders. He's still doing pretty well in those first two. I think some of the polling has him up in Nevada. If not, he's looking like a close second. South Carolina is not the most natural state for him, but, you know, he's got the money. He's got the name recognition. He's got about a quarter of the party that's really, you know, in his corner. He's well-situated to stay in this thing until the very end. And everyone says, ah, you journalists are always saying there's going to be a contested convention. Well, look, 2016... There was more contention at the convention. You know, both Trump got enough delegates and Hillary got enough delegates. But there were a decent number of delegates who wanted somebody else and were willing to make a little bit of noise. Didn't turn into a giant convention floor fight. But it got pretty close last time. This one with the Democrats, if everybody's splitting, uh, you know, 25, 20, 20, 15, and everybody else going for the rest, if that goes up long enough and then you throw in, you know, Bloomberg and his millions on Super Tuesday... Yeah, you could end up in a situation where nobody gets enough delegates. And then, you know, Democrats ignored Wisconsin last time around. But, you know, Greg, the biggest show on earth is going to be in Milwaukee. <laughs> That's and true. I mean the Brewers. They'll be in the state for that. Wow. I just realized uh, with your pronunciation of uh, Buttigieg that uh, if you throw in the possessive, it gets really hard to say. Because if you say, Buttigieg's, hey, yes, did, did you see Buttigieg's tweet? Buttigieg, yo. You know, I'll, it's Friday, so I'll close this out with some words of wisdom for all of our listeners. I, it was, it was, I saw this, on, it was posted on social media, and it's so true, Greg. There are three things in this life that are really hard to say. I was wrong. I need help. And Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> on that note, the profound insights of Jim Garrity always on display here, <laughs> Monday through Friday on the Three Martini Lunch. Jim, have a great weekend. See you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, please do so right now. Also, uh, leave us a great review if you enjoy the podcast over at iTunes. That's a huge help to us. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.